0: At this time, KCICFM invites you to join us for our weekly live broadcast of Pear Park Baptist Church.
1: I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3 this evening, Colossians chapter 3, as we really gear down and talk about the family a little bit. I'm 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 glad to be back in the book of Colossians even in your pulpit this evening. We have been making our way through the book of Colossians as a church family on Sunday mornings in Florida. And it's a really fascinating book, and I'm telling you this because before we get into the passage we're going to look at in Colossians chapter 3, I need to give you at least a snapshot of the context that gives a, really a meaning to what we're about to read. You see, Colossians is a unique book in that there's four chapters, and we know that chapters are not inspired, so it doesn't always work this way, but in in Colossians it does. You can actually almost put a dividing line between chapter 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4, and Paul will deal with two different things. In chapter 1 and chapter 2, he'll deal with the doctrine of Christ, and he'll really drill down deep on what it means to be a new person in Christ. But then in chapters 3 and 4, he'll talk about how your new man in Christ should impact your new relationships. And he'll lay out this lengthy foundation beginning in chapter 3, and really particularly in verses 12 through 17 of chapter 3, he'll show us how we are to live out our new man in our relationships. And his progression throughout the book is very clear. The entire point of the book is that we are to wrap ourselves up in Jesus. We are to literally live in such a way that we are putting on Jesus every day. And he'll he'll begin at the foundation and he'll work his way outward. And so he'll say in chapters 1 and 2, you're supposed to wrap up your heart in Jesus. And as you do, into chapter 2, he'll talk about how your heart-wrapped lifestyle will transform and become a heart, or rather a behavior-wrapped like Jesus, and that behavior will show itself up in your church and in your workplace. And finally, he drills home in the verses we're about to read how your Jesus-wrapped lifestyle will show up also in your family. And this conveys, by the way, before we even read these passages, two foundational truths. Number one, our families should be the first to see our new life in Christ. Our families should be the first to see our new life in Christ. And number two, true disciples of Jesus are not merely concerned with what will happen in eternity, for Christ tells us to die to self also in our relationships on earth. And so Paul's words on the family may seem at times strange to our culture, and many modern scholars get uncomfortable even writing about it, But this is an important passage, and sadly, this important passage has been ignored or misconstrued in many churches. But I think it's important for us to consider it on what should have been a family camp night. Here's what it says in verse 18 of chapter 3. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. You know, sadly, when people think of families, they don't often, in our culture, have great memories. In fact, even in the Bible, there are only four chapters in our recorded scripture that have no sin. Genesis 1 and 2, and Revelations 21 and 22. And therefore, even in scripture, we read of many tragic stories of bad family examples about it. Adam and Eve sinned, and Adam's first response was to blame his wife. They parented two male children, and one of which murdered his other brother. Wasn't a great start to the family as God had designed it to be. Abraham was God's chosen man. In fact, God would actually say, I know Abraham. He will raise his children right. But Abraham married two wives, breaking God's design, and eventually kicked one wife out while that wife was actually with child. A tragic story of sin. Jacob married several wives, like his grandfather. He had 12 sons, and of those sons, they eventually sold one of his sons into slavery and then lied that they had seen him killed by an animal to cover it all up. A tragic story of a broken family. David goes down in scripture as a man who was a man after God's own heart, and yet he too espoused many wives. His own son would abuse his stepsister, and then the daughter's brother Absalom would kill the son that abused his stepsister in a tragic way. David's son Solomon would write about how families should be even in marital relationships and cover an entire book about that topic, and yet even in his own life he would He would violate the very principles he wrote about in Scripture. When we consider the biblical narrative, then we see many families that have been broken by sin. And frankly, today's stories in 2020 are no different. Sin destroys family relationships. And therefore, our world has very few models of what God's design is for the family. Which begs the question, What is God's design for the family? If there's been so many tragic examples, surely somewhere along the line, God would write down in Holy Scripture how the family is supposed to operate. And we actually read one of those passages. In fact, idealistically, the family should be wrapped up in Jesus. That's what Colossians is all about. But Colossians really dovetails well with three other passages that talk about the family. We read the one in Colossians chapter three. We also can find another in Ephesians chapter five going into chapter six and another in 1 Peter chapter three. And each of these instructions on the family are written down as the family passages. Colossians three, Ephesians five and six, and 1 Peter three. And each of these passages share a common theme, a common characteristic. And here's what they share. It is within the walls of our home that our gospel ministry must first begin. These passages do indeed set an idealistic standard for the Christian home. But an idealistic standard is appropriate for the holy and elect of God that Colossians is written to. And since our position is heavenly, our standard for the home should also be that heavenly position, and since we have been made full in Christ, as Colossians 2 says, our homes should then reflect that fullness. Therefore, it's in the walls of our home that our gospel ministry must first begin. Believers cannot divorce their belief from their behavior, for Christ's efficiency encompasses both. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul addresses in kind each character, each person that plays a role within the home, from the wife to the husband to the child to the parent. And he provides for each a word that encompasses their Jesus-wrapped lifestyle. And each of these words that encompass the wife, the the husband, the child, and the parent bear a careful consideration in a sin-warped world. How can we be Jesus-wrapped in our homes in a sin-warped world? And the answer is found here in these family passages. And we'll begin in, in Paul's order as he addresses them. He goes from wife to husband to child to parent. And if you think you won't be talked about, just wait to the next point, because we'll get to you. Because we'll start with the wife, and we'll make our way to the husband, the child, and the parent. It doesn't matter where you are in life, this is for you. And so Paul says, Jesus wrapped wives... Have a word. Jesus' wives are to be submissive. That's in verse 18. Now, the Greek word submit means to be subject, and it often carries a nasty connotation. But it must be noted that submission in Scripture does not even remotely imply inferiority. Submission does not imply the wife is less than the husband. For Scripture has clearly indicated that male and female are equal in God's eyes. Galatians would say there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. There is equality. However, our equality and unity does not remove roles. But throughout Scripture, everybody is called to submit. Titus 2 and 1 Peter 2 say that everybody is to submit to their master's. Romans 13, Titus 3, and 1 Peter 2 says, everybody is to submit to the government. Romans 8, Romans 10, Ephesians 5 says, we are all to submit to God. Even within the walls of the church, everybody that comes to church should be characterized by submission. That's why Ephesians 5 would say, submitting to yourselves one to another in the fear of God. And within the church, submission should characterize our relationships. All of us, not just the wife. And so the kind of submission the wives are now to show in the home is not at, at all unlike the kind of submission the husband is to supposed to show in all of his relationships as well. Thus, it's not enough to simply know what submission means. We must consider why, in this passage, God calls the wife to be submissive because everybody is called to be submissive. What is this passage saying? And when I take Colossians chapter 3 and I pair it with the other passage on the family in Ephesians chapter 5, my eyesight becomes clearer when I can examine this verse. And here in Ephesians 5 verse 22, Paul says the wife is to be submissive because of her true priority. A believing wife is heavenly minded and so Paul says, submit yourselves as unto the Lord. In honoring Christ, this was Paul's passionate plea. Just one verse earlier, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Therefore, the believing's wife's submission to her husband highlights the submission that is even sweeter and more significant. Her submission is her true priority. Her true priority is Christ. And notice, there's actually a limit to this submission in verse 18. In Colossians 3, verse 18, it says, wives, submit yourselves unto the Lord as unto your own husbands, as it is fit in the Lord. The limit is as it is fitting in the Lord. Some limits of submission are not fitting in the Lord. Wives or future wives, if you are being abused physically or ber- verbally by your husband, there is a limit to submission. And if your child or yourself is in danger, the best word you can hear is call three numbers 911 and let the authorities come and arrest that man. And men, if you are unable to be a decent husband or father, the least you can do is spend a night in a jail cell thinking about it. If a man is too sorry to take care of his home and love his family, then he should pay the consequences, as is fitting in the Lord. But here's something husbands need to know as well as wives the wife's first priority is submission to God. And, husband, you'd better be okay with that. You should want that. And, girls in this room that maybe aren't married yet should listen closely to what Paul is saying. If you want a happy, healthy home one day, and I hope you do, you need to learn to submit to your Savior first. And when the day comes that you look across the room and some guy is interested in you and isn't interested in God, run away. Because your first priority is your Lord. That's why you submit. And you submit because of her true position. Again, Colossians 3 verse 18 says, as is fitting in the Lord. The primary reason for a wife should be submissive is due to her relationship with Christ. A believing wife now operates within this realm, and some worldly behaviors don't fit with her new relationship with Christ. There are certain behaviors that are not appropriate for a daughter of God to participate in because they are not fitting in the Lord. To help us understand this even better, we must consider the example then of our sister in Christ's brother, Jesus. And how did Jesus demonstrate submission? You know, the most striking use of this very same Greek word here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 18, the most striking use of that same word submission appears in Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, we find the story of how a young, perhaps 12, 13-year-old Jesus was left behind by his family, and and he's there conversing with the religious leaders of the day, and they were amazed, you remember, at the wisdom and wit of this young man. And his parents come back to him, and at first they rebuke him in Luke chapter 2, and they wonder, why aren't you traveling with us? And there we read that Jesus followed his parents, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, the very same Greek word is used. It says, he went down with them and was submissive to them. But here's what's neat. When a wife is asked to be submissive in the home, she's not asked to do anything Jesus wasn't already doing. Notice that? Here Jesus demonstrates the kind of submission that's expected, and it's not canceled by selfishness or stupidity. It's followed clearly. And therefore, within the walls of the home, gospel relationships should first be seen. And there's a word for the wife. The wife is to be submissive. But there's a word for the husband in verse 19. Husbands, be loving to your wives and be not embittered towards them. Therefore, Jesus' wrapped wives are to be submissive, and Jesus' wrapped husbands are to be loving. Now, much has been written on the difference between the Greek words for love between agape and phileo and whether or not there's any difference. I do not believe there's any difference between agape and phileo personally, so I'll avoid the topic altogether. However, I do understand that there's something important about love being displayed in Scripture. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, gives a simple definition of love. And in that verse, Paul admonishes husbands in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and he says, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Do you notice that? Perhaps if you don't quite understand what I'm getting at, I can read another verse about love. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 18 says, Let us not love in word or in deed only. Or rather, let us not love in word or in tongue only but in deed and in truth. Why do you read those two verses together? You may be wondering, Pastor Caleb. Because I just defined love. Love is action. Love is action. And by entrusting the husband with the initiatory active role of love, Christ highlights the sobering reality of the husband being the head of the home. He's the one that loves. And he loves, Paul says, because he can be tempted towards bitterness. Complementing Paul's commands for husbands to love their wives is husbands to be not bitter against them. The Greek word bitter means to produce a bitter taste in the stomach or to be irritated. To pigeonhole the genders for a moment, we typically think of wives expressing their anger or frustration by talking about it, and we think of husbands expressing it by bottling it all up. And therefore, Paul says, to be not bitter against them, a Jesus-wrathed husband will joyfully be motivated to actively love his wife by pursuing her always. By the way, that's a great remedy for any bitterness. Any bitterness is cured by communication. Just talk them out. And the the husband is also commanded to love because his love is actually tied to God's blessing in the home. Remember, I said at the beginning, there are are three family passages, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter chapter 3. You've heard me reference Ephesians 5 a few times already. Now let me reference 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7 says, likewise ye husbands, Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of God. Why? Here's why, husbands. That your prayers be not hindered. I remember serving in a church in Indianapolis under a man that I deeply respect and became my mentor, Pastor Rick Arrowwood. He did a series of messages on a Sunday evening on prayer. He spent a long time on prayer. And remember, two particular messages that stand out in my mind in that series is he talked about hindrances to prayer. In other words, there are things that you can do that would cause there to be a hindrance in your prayer life, and he spent an entire message just talking to husbands from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. Did you know that it is indeed possible, perhaps even probable, that there are men in the church that do not have good prayer lives because they do not love their wife. That's what the Bible is saying. Dear husband, your choice to actively love your wife is directly tied in Scripture to your prayer walk. And so Paul says, hey, here's some words for Jesus-wrapped families. And he says, what is God's divine directive for the home. And frankly, we live in a culture that has begun to lose its grip on what we now call a traditional or nuclear family. But this is not a traditional marriage, as many call it. I don't even like to use that term. We're just calling it a scriptural marriage because we're just allowing the Bible to dictate our terms. And so he says, for the wife, here's the word, submission. For the husband, here's the word, loving. And some of the kids might be saying, that's great, I haven't been talked to yet. Well, we're not done. As Paul says, I've got a word for you too. And Jesus-wrapped children are to be obedient. And the key observation that we could take away from this verse is that children have just as important a responsibility to put on Christ in the home as their parents do. Believing children have Christ, have just as much responsibility to wrap up their home in Christ as mom and dad. And the most obvious form of obedience is external, but it's not the only form. And so Paul says in verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things. And I love how every time he gives a command or a word, he attaches a reason to it, which is an important thing for parents to understand and for all of us to understand, God never gives us a precept or a command in Scripture without, without giving us a principle to follow it. And so here's a command. Children, obey. And you may ask why. Here's why. It is pleasing to the Lord. Do you know that it matches, just like the wife, it matches their new position as Christ? As we saw with the wife, believing children are to be obedient, and just like the wife, they are to be obedient in the Lord. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Therefore, some behavior does not fit with a transformed position. Children need to learn to live in light of their real position in Christ. Children need to understand what being in Christ encompasses. Children need to learn to evaluate their behavior, responses, speech, everything in light of behavior that fits in Christ. I appreciate so much having a dad that I can talk to about raising kids. And my dad will often repeat to me, and he'll say, it's really, really important for you, Caleb, as a new dad, to never say a tempting thing that parents can say when they tell a child to do something. They can say, well, do it because I said so. My dad as a pastor would say, be careful, don't use those words. Because you're trying to teach your child to have a Jesus-wrapped lifestyle. And so you say, Do it because I'm your dad, and here's what God says. You can do that as a young age, according to my dad. I believe he's right because I remember as a child hearing him say that. And every time I would do something wrong, he was careful to instruct me and encourage me, but he was pointing me back to my position in Christ. Here's why. And it also because it pleases the Lord. Colossians 3 verse 20 admonishes children to obey because obedience is pleasing. This is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, generally speaking, children love to please their parents, and I hope they're generally sorrowful when they disobey their parents. Therefore, think about it this way, kid. Did you know when you disobey your parents, you are displeasing God? And if obedience pleases God, that means disobedience displeases God. But to say that displease, disobedience displeases God would be a vast understatement in Scripture. Because sometimes the background of the Old Testament can actually give weight to the truths found in the New. And as we look at the background of the Old Testament when it comes to disobedient kids, we find some rather shocking things. Ready for this? First Samuel chapter 15 says, in verse 22 and 23, the Bible actually compares disobedient children to practicing witchcraft and idolatry. That's that's the comparison there in 1 Samuel chapter 15. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, the punishment in some cases for disobedient children, do you know what the punishment was? Stoning. I think it's safe to say God doesn't like disobedient children, would you say? some might be asking, well, what is a child? And that's a question that's become to be pushed on the boundaries of our culture because we continue to extend the ages of adolescence well past what we're used to. As a youth pastor, I came up with a definition because I kept being asked, what's a child? And my definition was simply this. If you're living in mom and dad's home and they're providing all the meals and all the insurance and everything for you, you're still a child. I don't care how old you are. I think it's a fair definition. You're independent, but that's a different story. So what is the word for the child? The word for the child is obedience. And the family is God's institution, and he's he's setting down a pretty high standard, I trust you understand. But if it's in Christ, I think it should be a high standard. And so Paul's not done. He says that Jesus-wrapped parents, then, are to be gracious. As we said at the beginning of this message, every member of the family is going to be put under the microscope, so now it's time for mom and dad to be squeezed. And here in verse 21, we read this, fathers, provoke not your children to anger lest they be discouraged. Now, although verse 21 is often translated fathers, Actually, the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature demonstrates that the word here in Greek may be male, but it's translated in the plural form in Greek, which means that it's not to be read fathers, it should be read parents. Therefore, Christ issues a final exhortation, and it's not just to dad. He says, parents, both of you, do not provoke your children so that they become disheartened consider this admonition with its complementary injunction, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, where it again uses a plural form of a Greek word which would suggest both mom and dad and says, and you parents, again speaking of mom and dad, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So here's what he's saying. What's the word for mom and dad? The word for mom and dad is be Gracious. Because graciousness avoids exasperating the child. The word provoke here means to cause someone to react in a way that arouses them to be irritated or embittered. Well, while parents most certainly enact discipline and should practice guidance, they must do so, according to Scripture, with wisdom and grace, lest they create a kind of slavery in the home. By the way, Paul's injunction to not embitter children conflicted greatly with the common Roman practice of the day. In the ancient Roman world, children were very much under the domination of their parents. In fact, the supreme example of this would be the Roman patria protestas, or the law of the father's power. You can read about it in ancient writ. And under this law, a father could do anything he wanted with the child. He could sell them into slavery. He could make them be a laborer on his farm, no matter their age. He even, according to that law, had the right to condemn his child to death and carry out that execution himself. And so in the middle of that Roman culture that exasperated the child, Paul says, hey, parents, don't do that. By the way, how can you, according to scripture, exasperate a child? Let me give you just 10 10 ways you could exasperate a child according to scripture. And these aren't original to me. I'm borrowing them from my dad. 10 ways you could exasperate a child. Number one, by overprotection. Exasperate a child by overprotection. Remember when I was in youth group, we had a youth group, it's still hard to believe, about 200 to 250 teens in our youth group. And there was a there was a parent that wanted to have our church, her son join the youth group. He was the only child. He had a little bit of only child syndrome as well. And uh, she was what you would call a helicopter mom. You know what I'm talking about? In fact, so much so that she, her son's name, I won't give it to you, but her son's name she had plastered on her vanity plate. So her license plate said her son's name. We lived in New Hampshire, so like Colorado, license plates were on the front and the back so you had son's name on front and back. She's the only mom that ever got kicked out of youth group. The reason being, she would go to every activity. She'd have to drive her brown minivan. I remember because I was a teenager at the time. She had to drive her brown minivan with her son's name attached to the front and the back. Our our ball field was kind of down in a hill, so the parking lot was up, and she'd drive all the way over the edge of the parking lot and sit there and watch everything going on, especially on Wednesday nights rather than join the adults. She wanted to watch her son so that her little boy wouldn't get hurt. She was very overprotective. I hate to even get into the details of where her son is, but it's not great. Exasperated him by overprotection. You can exasperate a child by showing favoritism in the home, can't you? Think about examples in Scripture like that of Joseph. Did you, you know, it's, 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 sometimes we've got to be careful in children's Sunday schools to, to say, well, Joseph was arrogant or proud. I mean, he was, he was sharing all these dreams. Be careful there because the Bible never says anything negative about Joseph. Never, ever. So for you to say anything negative, you are going outside the bounds of what Scripture says, which is a dangerous place to be. So what caused the 12 brothers to kind of have some angst with Joseph? Here's what caused it. Dad. His favoritism. By showing favoritism, you can exasperate a child. By depreciating their worth, number three, pushing them down, not ever giving any compliments. Or by setting unrealistic goals. I remember I, I had a, a boy in my youth group who truly believed, and I believe as well, he wanted to be a preacher. That's what he wanted. But his dad had spent, his dad and his grandpa had spent their entire lives starting their last name and son's company. So his his career was dictated before he was born and he didn't have a choice in the matter. Feel bad for that boy. Unrealistic goals. By failing to show affection. Failing to show affection, number five. You can can exasperate a child by by failing to show affection. By not providing for their needs. can exasperate a child by a lack of standards in the home, just letting the child run the home. I, I have, a, I have a, a burden in my heart because there's a, there's a family that comes to our church and they're, they're really, they're very new in Christ. And every once in a while, I'll see that either dad or mom won't be there. And I'll, I'll kind of inquire later, where, where were you going? I mean, we just missed you. That's all we're asking. And, and I'll hear something like, well, little Jimmy, he's like eight, decided he wanted to sleep in today, so we're gonna let him. Well, I'm sorry, but eight-year-olds don't get that choice, right? I mean, if you're going to church, we're going as a family. That's how I see it. You can't, you can't live that way, and, and he's just going to grow up to who knows what. I, I'm burdened for that family. You can exasperate a child by criticism. All, all the time, cutting them down, pulling them down. Neg- you can exasperate him by neglect, just never spending time with them. You know, I, 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 as, I did kind of an informal poll when I was a youth pastor, I didn't ask for names, I just asked for details, and I did a poll of our, of our teenagers, and I asked our teenagers, how many of you have ever had dad or mom read the Bible to you? And the poll was pretty sobering, because most of them never had had that experience. I followed it up, and I said, how many of you could just write down, I, I just asked, can you write down your parents' salvation testimony? and most of them had no clue their parents' salvation testimony. When I say by neglect, I'm I'm not just talking about physical needs. I'm talking about spiritual needs. Parents, do you realize that you are the primary disciple-maker of your child, not the church? You are. Church can certainly help you, but you are given the task. By neglect, and number 10, by excessive discipline. Constant discipline. And Paul says instead of developing bitterness in them, parents must aim to train their children in the instruction of the Lord. We must treat these children as God would treat them. In a sense, they are not ours after all, they're His. And our goal is to shoot them like arrows. That's our goal, not to hoard them by overprotection. And graciousness also actively does discipline the child. On the flip side, gracious parents are not only gracious in their spirit toward their children and avoiding exasperating their child, but they are also gracious in their ministry. And yes, I did use the word ministry in conjunction with discipline, because ministry is discipling and discipling is discipline, even your own growth. The Bible would say, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so he says in Ephesians chapter six, verse four, and you fathers provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Did you know you could rightly translate that verse this way? And you parents, take them by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. Quite simply, wrap them up in Jesus. Wake them up talking about Jesus and put them to bed talking about Jesus. And watch the difference it would make. If you have a mom or dad that was willing to do that for you, you should be exceedingly thankful, by the way, because that's a high standard. I'm super thankful for my parents, but I recognize the standard that was raised. But it was raised not by them. It was raised right here in these passages we're looking at tonight. What responsibilities does a Christian have to his family based on his identity in Christ? Paul here is giving responsibilities of the members of the family, and it should be noted that each one is given a word that's difficult to live in accordance to. Everyone is. It's not easy. But each one is also given a significant word that overlaps with the duties and responsibilities with everybody else. Who isn't called to submit? Who isn't called to be loving? Who isn't called to be gracious? Who isn't called to be obedient? Therefore, if there's any institution in the world that ought to be the place that people run to for family instruction, it better be the church. That's the foundation upon which ministry is built. I I love it. I love it. I genuinely love it when a baby cries in my service at church. It gets me excited because we got families. That's a cool thing. I, I actually sometimes enjoy... Believe it or not, in our church, I kind of like it when a toddler comes screeching down the hallway. I actually like it because that means there's something going on here that we can help with. There's a child there running around the hallways. I love that. And I love it when we've got older, seasoned couples who can come and we can rejoice, and we make a big to-do about it too. And they'll say, we've been married for 40 years. 50, 60 years, and it's not just a paper that they signed, because you can see them in church holding hands as they sing. I I think of in terms of my life, there's a couple in our church, they have been married for 48 years, and they can't keep their hands off each other. (laughs) And I actually, I just think that, that is amazing to see. And I wish I wish our I like to see our show that to our teenagers and to our young kids and say look at the look at what God did for this couple. That's a high standard, is it not? But it's within the walls of our home. It's within the walls of our home that our gospel ministry must begin. I say that with a burdened heart as a pastor, as a young pastor as well, because this is my primary responsibility as much as I love being a pastor. It's within the walls of a home. may, May Christ just allow us to wrap ourselves up in Jesus, that our beliefs are not somehow different than our behaviors in our home. That we don't just come to church and sing the songs and look the part but we live it at home in front of our kids and our spouse as well. That's a Jesus-wrapped family. In a warped world by sin, it's hard to see sometimes. It's even hard to see in Scripture. We have bad examples, but we have God's Word to tell us how to live. And there may be some that think and say, "Well, no, Pastor Kilb, we've messed up a little bit. We, we We need some work on this or that or the other thing. Listen, if you're still taking air in your lungs, breathing it out through your nose, you still have a chance to make this right. God's given you the opportunity to still wrap your home up in Jesus. It doesn't matter what age stage you are in, God still asks you to match your beliefs with your behavior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, this is what a Jesus-wrapped home looks like, and boy, it's pretty a high standard. It's it's almost overwhelming to consider. Lord, we can't leave tonight without each of us pondering in the hearts and souls of our own being changes that perhaps need to be made that we may manifest what behavior looks like that would match our beliefs. Lord, I trust and I hope and pray that there are many in this room that do believe Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And as a result, I pray that their Holy Spirit is working in them to begin to oh, how can I improve this? Lord, may we have Jesus-wrapped families because that's how we're going to change the world. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.
0: Thanks for joining us for our weekly live broadcast from Parapark Baptist Church. We pray the service was a blessing to all our listeners. Our earnest prayer is that you personally have trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Romans 6 and verse 23 tells us the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And Romans 10.13 tells us, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you'd like to trust Christ, you must first believe that you're a sinner, deserving of God's judgment, and that Christ died to pay God's penalty for your sin, and that he rose again from the dead then you may right now pray and according to Romans 10:13 call upon God and ask for salvation through Jesus Christ if you've made a decision to trust Christ let us know the number of the offices at Pear Park Baptist Church is 434-4113 someone's generally available to take calls during regular weekday business hours in addition the best means to spiritual help and growth is through faithful attendance at a Bible-believing church. We would encourage you to be at the very next service of Pear Park Baptist Church. Our weekly prayer meeting and Bible study is at 7 p.m. on Wednesdays, Sunday schools at 10 o'clock a.m. Sunday mornings, with the worship service at 11, and at 6.30 p.m. the evening service. Pear Park Baptist Church is a fundamental Bible-preaching and Bible-believing church located here in Grand Junction at 3102 E Road. And once again, we appreciate your joining us for this live broadcast of Pear Park Baptist Church.